Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to 4 o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time. Today on the program, Sudan, why action is needed to combat human rights abuses. We're speaking with Sudanese-Australian Sarah Sanada. Work of an environmental, I'm sorry, of an ecumenical accompanying person in Palestine, working in the occupied West Bank and the annexed East Jerusalem. A look back over decades and the the coups in Latin America with USA stamped on them. It will be a segment from the Latin American Update program last Sunday at 10.30. More developments concerning the Linus Rare Earth Processing Plant in Malaysia and another first-hand account of life for Palestinians in both Palestine and Israel with Professor Bassam Daly from the University of Adelaide. Sudan, one of the largest and most geographically diverse states in Africa, split into two in 2011 after the people of the South, who are mainly Christian and animist, voted for independence, in contrast to the Arab Muslim North. For decades there have been conflicts, both North-South civil war and a continuing conflict in the western region of Darfur. And in 2019, people are still fleeing from repression and human rights abuses. Sarah Sinada from Sudan now lives in Australia with her family. And I asked Sarah what life was like for her in Sudan. I was just a normal girl. Uh, I was working in a non-profit in Sudan. I started a family and um, it wasn't the best place to raise a child given the current regime, so we moved here. Well, that regime has been in for a long time. How have they managed to stay in power so long? Mainly by instilling fear. That's been their main method since they came to power. This regime came to power through a military coup in 1989, and they overthrew a democratically elected government, actually, came into power, and they called themselves the saviors to save us from a regime that they said in the very first statement was putting the the country in economic distress and people were standing in long queues to get bread and to get gas for for their cars. And it's really ironic because that's exactly where we are 30 years later. Can you talk about those years and the repression that's been meted out to the people? If people put their head up and protest... What happens? In Sudan, it's illegal, basically, to protest. The con- even though it's illegal, the constitution, the, the, the constitution allows people to go out and peacefully protest. It's, it's a constitutional right to express yourself peacefully. However, in reality, people are not even allowed to congregate anywhere outdoors. When people go out to protest in Sudan, they're met with live ammunition, rubber bullets, and um, tear gas. 
they're being detained arbitrarily. They're being taken from the streets, from their homes, from their schools, and they're being held in places that are not known for their families, tortured, beaten, sometimes even raped and killed. No charges are ever made against whoever does this to them. You mentioned that he said when he came in that things would be better. Can you describe the living conditions for the ordinary people in Sudan? I'm thinking about health care, access to housing, children going to school. What's the situation? That's a really tough question. More than half the population in Sudan lives under $1 a day. Access to education and access to health care is extremely expensive. A lot of, you know, basic things are not available. So when you take someone to ER, for instance, they're met with a long list of basic things that are not available, like syringes and, like, basic things that someone at an ER should be able to get. And then families are left running around trying to gather these things from pharmacies privately and then coming back to the ER to find their loved ones in no worse condition than when they came in with them. Education is also pretty expensive. Not everyone is able to afford to afford education. When during my work in um, the nonprofit sector in Sudan, I was working in employment projects to help young people find work, and many of them were trying to find work just to be able to pay their tuition fees. And when they're not able to pay the full amount up front, they're often met with host- hostility from uh, from the heads of the. In- in- educational institutions where they work, where they basically just tell them that, you know, if you can't, if you can't afford education, that maybe you shouldn't even seek it. It's a really terrible situation, to be honest. When we see the refugees trying to cross into Europe from Africa, would you say that a fair percentage of those would be from Sudan, trying to escape? Of course, of course. There's, a, there's yeah, there's... A, there is definitely a large number of people who are trying to escape the situation. They're so desperate, getting on a boat, taking their families and babies on a boat across the Mediterranean seems like a safer option than staying in, in Sudan. Are there outside powers that help to keep this government where it is, or is it just homegrown? Of course. The, the sad thing about the situation in Sudan the protests started in December 19th. Since the, the protests started, protesters were immediately met with brutal force, arbitrary detention, life ammunition, killing of young people, right and left, torture, the most recent being a school teacher who was taken from his home because he peacefully de- demonstrated on the same day. He was taken and he was tortured and he was tortured really horribly uh, until he died. And when he was returned to his family, he was told that he died from poisoning. And then later on, later on, the truth was found. But still, nobody, despite all the horrible and horrendous situation, the international community has no interest in the regime change. Uh, The current president, the dictator that's been there for 29 years, has been basically keeping everybody happy. What happens is that these people, they come in, they, they bring them back using the same forces that they used to use for ethnic cleansing in Darfur, 
even though it's part of a, a of a safe return project, there's no there's no monitoring or evaluation tools in place to show where these people go or where they are. They just they simply disappear. And they're usually or mostly young men. Mostly young men, yes. When were you last there, Sarah? I was just there when the protests when the protests started in, on December 19th. I was there for, for the three weeks that followed. Could you describe those three weeks and how the people coping at the moment, what's happening to the protesters, how you feel going back and seeing your people being treated that way? Going back to Sudan, I was going for holidays during the Christmas break. Going back to Sudan I was very anxious because the economic situation was very unstable. There were price hikes. The most basic goods were very scarce. Uh, I was hearing about long queues for bread and long queues to get gas for your car. And it didn't matter whether you have money or not. It was simply not there. It was very difficult to get bread and get gas and even to take your money out of a bank. There was a limit that was enforced by the government that if you go to a bank to take out your money, you can't take out more than $20 out of your account. And that's basically because they were running out of money. So it was was very worrying going back there. And then as soon as I got there a couple of days later, the headquarters for the ruling party in the city of Adbara was burned down by protesters. People were protesting about prices and about the regime in general because they were very frustrated and they burned down the headquarters for the ruling party and Abba. That was the first indication of, you know, absolute frustration. And then from then on, um, people continued to protest despite burning the headquarters of the ruling party. All of the protests that followed were very peaceful. They were just getting out on the streets, yelling, peaceful, peaceful, peaceful and yelling, freedom, peace, and justice, freedom, peace, and justice. That was December and January. What's the situation there that you're hearing? The situation right now is that people are continuing with the protests, and they're continuing at a much larger scale. The protests started very, they were very emotional. There were just people who were frustrated. They were going out on the streets. Nobody knew who was organizing this. Nobody was really organizing it. It was very neighborhood-based. People in the neighborhood were very frustrated. They would go out on the street and, you know, yell out their frustration. But then at the beginning of January, end of December, a group called the Sudanese Professionals Association took charge and started organizing these protests. The identities of who's in the Sudanese Professionals Association are anonymous. Nobody knows who's 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 organizing this, but it's it's it was a necessity in order to ensure that the protests continue. Because if the government finds out who they are, they're all going to get locked up and tortured. In fact, one of them, the representative or the spokesperson for the Sudanese Professionals Association, who read up the Declaration of Freedom freedom and change, where they declared the demands of the people, which are to overthrow the regime and uh, demanding peace and justice, was locked up and uh, he's being tortured and that's all we know about him. He's, he disappeared after making, making the declaration of 
freedom and change on via a video that went viral on social media. It must be very difficult for Sudanese people living here in Australia to know what's happening at home. What can you do? It's been really, really almost paralyzing at one point when we're here and we're hearing about neighbors and friends who are beaten during protests, who are arrested during protests, and all the young people that are dying hearing their stories and resonating with their stories because it could have been any of our brothers, any of our children, any of our cousins, neighbors. So it's been really, really, um, we all went through a phase where we were all pretty depressed over here. And so we started thinking about ways that we can help and recognizing that the need for the international community to hear what's happening in Sudan, to take a stand against the torture, take a stand against the brutal use of, the use of brutal force against protesters in order for it to stop, because that's the one thing and the only thing that scares the current regime. They see any of the protesters holding their phone and trying to take a photo or a video, then rest assured that this person holding their mobile phone is getting arrested and that their phone is going to get taken away from them. So they don't want the word to get out. They don't want the world to know what they're doing. And it's our responsibility to get to get the voice of the Sudanese protesters side of Sudan. Apart from interviews such as this, how are you doing it? First of all, we're organizing a rally on Saturday, this Saturday, in the city to bring attention and raise awareness about the Sudanese revolution. We're also organizing an art exhibition that showcases the revolution art of um, the Sudanese artists in Sudan and in the diaspora have made about the revolution. The idea for this exhibition is that it's going to take place globally. It's going to start here in Melbourne, and it's going to be replicated with the same pieces of art and with the same everything, really, across different cities in the world. We're going to start with Melbourne, then it's going to go to Sydney, hopefully uh, Brisbane and Perth, and then hopefully also um, we have a team in Germany, in Sweden, in Denmark, in the United States, in, in, in the United Kingdom. And it's really open to be replicated everywhere, wherever we have someone who expresses interest. They, they want to curate the exhibition. Where's the venue for Melbourne? We're going to announce everything on our Facebook page and on our website. The Facebook page is called The Sudan Exhibit. It's going to be launched in the coming couple of days. And we're also going to have a website, but it's also, it hasn't launched yet. It's going to be called SudanExhibit.com. And the rally on Saturday? Yes. Where is that? Uh, the rally is going to start at Federation Square. We're going to walk all the way to the city library. And then we're going to stay there for a while to raise awareness about the issue, talking about the protests. We're going to have a few people make statements there read some some influential pieces that have been written about the the revolution. What time? It's going to start at 12 at Federation Square until 2 p.m. at the City Library. Okay, Sarah, is there anything else you'd like to say? I'd just like to implore on everybody listening to this radio show to take a stand. Now you've been informed, now you know about the horrible human rights atrocities that are happening in Sudan. 
you have a responsibility. Please share the knowledge that you know. Please talk about it. That's really the least you can do. If you can tweet about it, use the hashtag Sudan Uprising to bring more attention to the issues. Speak to, write to your member of parliament, speak to your counselor. If there's anything that can be done, just to shed more light on the killings and the, the oppressive, oppressive Sudanese regime, then please do so. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. And that's Sarah. Sonata from Sudan, now living in Australia with her family. And it's issues like that that keeps us on our toes here at 3CR and, and that's why 3CR is so important because of issues like this that usually the mainstream media will not touch. Hi, I'm Jacob from the Friday Rave and I'm also on 3CR's Committee of Management. Now, the community of passionate people that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions. For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and in doing so remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick, with working bees, door knocks, on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now, we need your commitment to keep this great thing going. Now, you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 9419 8377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. Monica Kylie was deployed to Palestine, Israel by Act for Peace in April 2018, where she participated in the EAWPI program, that's the Ecumenical Accompaniment Program in Palestine and Israel, and contributed to unarmed civilian protective presence and human rights monitoring in at-risk communities in the occupied West Bank and annexed East Jerusalem. The views or opinions in this interview do not necessarily represent those of Act for Peace or EAWPI. When I spoke with Monica, I asked her when and how she found out about the program. It was pretty random. I had liked the Act for Peace page on Facebook and one day an ad popped up and I'd happened to get through an introduction to peace and conflict studies class and I knew about the concept of protective presence and it was something that I was really interested in so it was just fortunate that I saw that ad. What did you believe you could achieve or contribute to this? Well initially I was really unsure and I was really kind of sceptical about being part of some program on the other side of the world that I had very little knowledge of have a fairly strong sense of social justice so that was there initially but I was also interested in learning about different ways of helping so yeah initially I had no idea what I was getting myself into but I did a lot of research I spoke to a lot of people a lot of people in the humanitarian sector I guess who had worked in the Middle East and who were familiar with Acts for Peace and they were very positive about the impact that the organisation was having so if I'm completely honest I wasn't entirely sure what I was getting myself into but I 
had some good advice and was kind of going in with an open mind and and was interested to learn more. What was the training you were given? Initially, you're interviewed a few times and then you go and participate in a five-day training in Australia. We've actually just run that a couple of weeks ago for the next lot of recruits. And that training is varied. It's five days, so it's quite extensive. We go over things like cultural competency, so very specific to Palestine and Israel. And we talk about human rights law and humanitarian law. We do a lot of sort of group activities and we're assessed on how we work in teams on our, you know, really basic soft skills like listening and empathy and that kind of stuff. And then on the fourth or so day into the training, we are then put through sort of a role play or a simulation. This training takes place outside Melbourne in a, on a property sort of in the middle of nowhere and the whole establishment is set up to echo some of the situations that we are exposed to when we're actually in countries. Things like checkpoints are set up, basic tasks like walking children to school, simulators, and we go through a whole lot of different challenges that we might encounter. So, for example, speaking to soldiers, speaking to people who have been under very recent trauma for one reason or another, or the different sort of authorities that we'll be bumping into. And, yeah, that goes for several hours and sort of assessed and we also get a sense of what it might be like ourselves so we then have the opportunity to say well actually is this something that we are really wanting to get ourselves into because you know it does sound like an adventure and it can be an adventure in many aspects but it's also you know a really serious situation that a really serious meaningful and traumatic events and situations that we're putting ourselves in potentially yeah we've got to go in with our eyes open And then once we actually get to Palestine and Israel, we have another 10 days of training in Jerusalem, and that's run by local staff there. And we have a few days of shadowing people who've been doing the work before us, so I think there's about four days of shadowing current human rights observers. So, uh, yeah, we're kind of eased into the process, and, yeah, that's quite an extensive training in advance. How many in a team and what age differences between you? Once we get to Palestine and Israel, there's seven different placements around the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. And the team sizes vary, anywhere from two people to, you know, five or six. The age difference really varies. Um, You've got to be 25 or over to participate and then generally 70 years or under, just so that you can... Yeah, you've got a sort of le- a certain level of maturity, hopefully, and then also are able to take on the physical demands of doing things like walking through the desert. And so it's quite varied. So, for example, in my team, I think there was somebody who was around 45 years old, and then there were a few others who were about my age. But in other teams, we had a couple of women who were in their very late 60s and quite a spread. You were based in East Jerusalem? I was. Yeah, um, I probably can't tell you exactly where no. I live, <laughs> but I was in. Yeah, East Jerusalem is a is sort of the Palestinian side of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has been be, um, petitioned by the UN into sort of the West Jerusalem, which is Israeli for the most part, and then East Jerusalem, which is Palestinian. So I was on the Palestinian side, and then the old city is in the centre, and that is sort of theoretically 
everybody's shared area. Each day you were given a certain area to go to or a certain person to look after? How does it work? One day can vary quite a lot from the next, but then we also have certain tasks that are you know, our priority, and so we do them quite regularly. So, for example, it might be walking children to school. So we would yeah, become quite familiar over the, the three months that we're there for placement. We yeah, are really familiar with that scenario, and then on other days we might go to, for example, Calandia Checkpoint. I spent a lot of time monitoring human rights there and accompanying for the most part, workers who were trying to get from the West Bank into Jerusalem for work. Yeah, and then we'd have other tasks that would sort of pop up. So, for example, we might be responding to a call from the UN Humanitarian Affairs Organisation. So we could be responding to a house demolition and they might want us to go and collect information about how that house demolition took place and who was affected and, and what those people might need now. They're the main tasks that we did on a daily basis. Can I take you through some of those? Talk about the children that you were accompanying. What ages and and what was the, the, I suppose, demeanour of the children? Were they frightened? Were they glad to see you? Mm. I guess when, the first thing to clarify is when we're talking about walking children to school, it's quite different to walking children to school in Australia. The things that would uh, were conjured up in my mind would be, you know, you grab a, a child's hand and you walk them across a road or maybe, or, but it's not quite like that. It's the area that we were monitoring and walking children to school in was in the old city, so that, that's that shared part of Jerusalem, right in the centre. And it was less personal in a lot of ways, I guess. There were certainly uh, opportunities to speak to children, but for Palestinian children, their, their route is sort of lined with different, it's border police being in Jerusalem, but with stations where these border police would be situated all along their route. And what would happen is we would see children walk, not doing anything wrong, but on their way, and they would be stopped and pulled to the side potentially, and things like being frisked would happen, or they would be verbally assaulted, or they would just have somebody kind of stand particularly close to them in a really threatening way. So the idea was that we would actually go and literally just be present and make sure that the border police saw that we were in, we were there and monitoring on that day. And the idea about protective accompaniment is not so much that we are able to, you know, intervene when violence is already happening, but that we're able to be sort of immediate reminder of accountabilities to just yeah deter violence in the very first instance. Just the fact that we are there and we are watching the behaviours of border police or military or any potential perpetrator, depending, you know, regardless of which side they're on, can be really, really helpful and really be the difference between a child feeling comfortable walking to school and going to school and arriving safely or not. The children that we accompanied would often sort of wave and say hello. Others would be more shy, as you can uh, imagine, and they would be less likely to make eye contact. Some would buy their breakfast at the, the little shop on the corner and they would come and yeah, exchange a few words and kind of be the daring one in the group and sort of you know, ask us questions like where we're from and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Were the settlers also a threat to the children? Yeah, most definitely. The difference between the, the military and the settlers, the military have their own protocols. So there's that, that hierarchy within the Defence Force. 
And those protocols are also very useful in at least making personnel aware that there is some kind of accountability within their own framework that can be effective in some situations and not so much in others. But with the settlers, they really are sort of, in many ways, rogue citizens. But having said that, they also have ties to, they also have links and they have a lot of protection from the military. So because they're Israeli citizens, the military apparatus will go and support or ensure their safety, even if they have settled outside of Israel, the state of Israel, in Palestinian land, which is, under international law, illegal. But, yeah, in terms of threats, the biggest risk to the people that we were protecting, well, certainly one of the biggest risks to people we were protecting, and certainly the biggest risk to accompaniers are, are the settlers. And just before we move on, I do need to, to qualify that by saying that even though as internationals we do meet with a certain level of risk by being there in the first place and doing this kind of work, it's also done with a great deal of privilege. And you know, the fact that I'm an Australian citizen or the fact that my colleague had a Turkish passport or, you know, it really does offer us a great deal of protection in that context, and it's part of our security mechanism that we know that we can call on our own government to come into that for us if we get into any trouble. So the risk, I want to be very clear, is very much on the populations that we're protecting and not so much on us. How are you identified? So we have um, a very interesting style of vest. <laughs> it's not the most beautiful thing in the world, but it's uh, effective and our organisation's logo is on the back. And I was actually really surprised just how well-known EAPPI, so that's the Ecumenical Accompaniment Program in Palestine and Israel, it's a bit of a mouthful, is known in Palestine and Israel, and especially in the particular communities where we work and we have yeah, long-standing relationships with the communities there. Did any of the settlers try to intimidate you as well? Yes, I guess, I mean... The first thing to say is that a lot of these settlers, especially if they're living in the West Bank, are often armed. You can be walking down the street and someone turns a corner or a settler turns a corner and you they have a machine gun on their back for <laughs> for an accessory. So that in itself is extremely intimidating. But more personally, there was an instance when I was in Hebron and this was outside the Cape of the Patriarchs. You know, it's a place of religious significance and it's particularly tense in that area. I had been invited in to, to sit and have coffee with some of the shop owners who were, Palest were Palestinian, and this was right in front of a military checkpoint. Again, some settlers turned the corner and one of them had a machine gun on their back and I was sitting down yeah, with these Palestinians drinking coffee and kind of... a unprepared for them, I, I was there visiting and I was yeah, unprepared for this to happen but there were three of them, very very sort of big burly blokes kind of um, towering over us all sit sitting down and one of them, not the one with the, the machine gun over his back but one of them came along and he put his hand on the shoulder of one of the Palestinians I was sitting with and sort of leant over him and was actually had this really sort of happy demeanour and was kind of, you know actually saying, oh, how are you going today? But it was in this, it was in an incredibly intimidating way, you know, quite a lot of pressure that he was applying to the shoulder of this Palestinian. And then 
the other two guys walked into this this person's shop, which was very much an attempt to commandeer space. And I was intimidated. I had certainly never experienced anything quite like that. But the thing to note, again, is that these shopkeepers are there every day of the year, you know, for the last, you know, for their entire lives, and they deal with that on a daily basis. It's also interesting to note the the protection that those settlers have from the military. I remember a couple, a French couple, walking down and, and introducing themselves to us on that very day and them saying, oh, we're a little bit too afraid to go and walk down the other street. There's nobody there. Our response to that was, actually, it's where... You, and also, they said, there's nobody there, but there's also no military there, so we don't feel safe. And our response to that was, Kind of like, well, my goodness, <laughs> like it's where there's military that you know there's settlers because the military are there to protect the settlers. And if there are settlers, that's where the highest risk is because these illegal settlers are deliberately moving into Palestinian neighbourhoods. And just to be really, really clear, like, again, the state of Israel is has been recognised internationally, but the West Bank is recognised internationally as Palestinian. So the fact that these Israeli settlers are moving into the West Bank and settling in the middle of Palestinian neighbourhoods. It isn't just a matter of, oh, well, why don't you just share your neighbourhood? It's a provocation and it's a takeover. And so it is very antagonistic. It's like, I don't know, somebody from, let's say, England (laughs) coming to settle in Australia (laughs) and saying to the Indigenous population, well, hang on a second, like, just get out. It's not a friendly exchange colonisation, yeah. Just going back to the coffee shop, what did your training teach you to do in a situation like that? Essentially, in that sort of situation where we had very little control in that particular instance, you know, they had decided to make a move and in, in that situation we, it's kind of almost too late to really have that deterrent effect. So to not escalate the situation. So, for example... I really did follow the lead of the Palestinians in that situation. They are very well-practised at maintaining their cool, despite the fact that obviously they're furious that, that this is being done to them. So, I, yeah, I followed their lead. I stayed as cool and as calm as I possibly could. And also, I knew that they were what they're looking for in that situation is a reaction, you know, for somebody to kind of yell back or for somebody to push them out of the way or for somebody to be triggered because in that instance the military behind them are watching and while nothing will happen will be done if a Palestinian's rights generally speaking if there's a provocation towards a Palestinian very little is done by the Israeli military or police having said that if something were to happen to a settler there would be an arrest made immediately So that works in favour of the settlers and, more broadly, the settlement movement because then there's another Palestinian who is potentially traumatised or potentially just living under an extra amount of tension (laughs) and a family that's under extra tension because somebody, you know, the family member has been arrested. And it makes it easier for them, again, to push the Palestinians out. I also have to be really careful. Like, this this is kind of on the very... in the most tense places in the West Bank and it's on the front line so to speak and so of 
an occupation that is extremely one-sided in terms of power. I don't want to write off the fact that or neglect the fact that there are many, many Israelis who are doing absolutely brilliant work and who are extremely kind-hearted, whether that be, you know, in their own communities or towards Palestinians. But it is, yeah, in the most sort of tense places. So just bear that in mind when I'm talking. So some of these situations don't have the nuance of other places and, and that's what I'm talking about now. And also the fact that it could be a difference between life and death for a Palestinian. Yeah, most definitely. Talk about the checkpoints, what your yeah. role was at checkpoints. The main checkpoint that I was at was the Kalandia checkpoint, which I think I mentioned before, and that is one of the biggest and it's permanent, and it is the, the main access point between the Palestinian city of Ramallah and Jerusalem. And I'll just quickly note, there are over 100 permanent checkpoints in Palestine, but then there are also these sort of what, what are called flying checkpoints, which just sort of pop up random from one day to the other, which make it really, really difficult to establish any sense of predictability in, in your life when you're trying to get from A to B. But back to Kalandia and my role there, that was really a protected presence mission rather than, you know, sometimes we are sort of doing other things at the same time as protected presence. But we were just standing there. We were watching the flow. So most of these people are trying to get from Ramallah to Jerusalem to access employment or to access things like healthcare at, at hospitals or even, you know, to access the post office. So Jerusalem is this cultural and economic hub for both Israelis and Palestinians. But the problem is that Palestinians don't have the same access. There are these checkpoints. And Kalandia, to paint a picture of what Kalandia actually looks like, you walk in and it's like a, a really big shed almost and like with open sides on one side. And you walk in and you are faced with a lot of metal and, barb and razor wire and turnstiles. And so you're facing sort of, I think it was three turnstiles to begin with. And then once you... So there's a waiting bay, these turnstiles, then you go through the first set of turnstiles and there's another waiting bay and then you go through another set of turnstiles and then there's where your permit or your uh, residency is actually checked. That is where security actually takes place and it's monitored. And then you go through and you, another set of checkpoints and then you're on the Jerusalem side. How long does that take? It can take anywhere from 15 minutes to four or five hours. It really, really depends on luck, it would seem. The reason why I sort of hesitated in saying it's, it's a place where you're you get a security clearance is because Kalandia really, as somebody who has been there many, 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 many times on many days, it doesn't feel like what they're doing, the primary purpose of that checkpoint is for checking security. It really feels like it's intimidation and it's humiliation, this process that you go through because, you know, you can be walking through and think and get past the first section and then you'll see some staff who are on their mobile phones and you might be trying to get their attention to go through to the next to the next step and they're 18-year-olds who have been conscripted. They don't want to be there necessarily. They've had this image of what it was like to be a soldier 
from sort of childhood and it's, you know, this rite of passage within Israeli society and it's an honourable thing and suddenly they find themselves at Kalandia checkpoint and their one job is to push a button on a turnstile and literally that is, there's a role there that all they do is push a button and every, you know, few minutes to let people through and they sit there for eight hours and they are bored and they are, yeah, they're on their phones or they're chatting and they're distracted but then they're also genuinely fearful of the of the of Palestinians because that is the society that they've grown up in. You know, they have grown up with the occupation in Israel and Palestinians are completely othered and Israelis in many ways are completely othered by Palestinians. But I guess Kalandria is also a really good example of the segregation that goes on between the two societies because even at Kalandria where you might be standing within a few metres of each other. There's no way of actually, of a Palestinian actually just calling out and speaking to an Israeli or vice versa because the way that this labyrinth of a checkpoint is designed is to keep people apart. So the soldiers are in their own sort of rooms, you know, behind glass and concrete and, and Palestinians are being herded through these cages essentially that are surrounded by razor wire yeah it's a really dehumanizing situation for both parties and i'd imagine that there's no guarantee that a palestinian will get through all those buttons good point yes going back to what my job was your initial question one of our jobs was to then try and have a a quick conversation with people who were denied access or denied entry into jerusalem and often what will happen is that they have no idea why they've been denied. So some people will be like, oh, yes, okay. So I knew that, you know, I didn't have the right permit, but I thought I would try anyway because I really need to work today to feed my family or something like that. But then something to note is that for the workers who do have permits to work in Israel, those permits actually don't belong to the workers themselves. They belong to their employers. If, for example, an employer has decided that that worker is no longer needed for whatever reason, they can just cancel that permit. And so a worker will have often come from a faraway point in the West Bank, got up at 3 o'clock in the morning to be at work at 9, not knowing exactly how long it would take them to get through the checkpoint, have waited two hours to get to the final permit check and suddenly just be given a access denied you have to turn around and there'll often be absolutely no explanation whatsoever and so they come back having sort of pushed their way back through those tunnels that I was talking about before and past people who have, are also feeling frustrated that they have been waiting for hours to get to work and they get to the other side and they a feel really humiliated about the whole situation but also you know really need to earn an income that day so we try and go through some of the and collect whatever information that they have about their situation, if they have any. And we also try and put them onto an organisation called Maxim Watch, which is Hebrew for Checkpoint Watch, essentially. And this is a brilliant organisation which is run by Jewish Israeli women, who mostly grandmothers actually, who are retired and, and devote their lives to the administration of getting permits 
reinstated and and yeah and helping Palestinians access the really basic needs that they have um, in terms of health and work and whatever else it is that they need to access in Jerusalem. I've been speaking to Monica Kiley. Monica was deployed to Palestine, Israel by Act for Peace in April 2018 where she participated in the ecumenical accompaniment program for Palestine and Israel and contributed to unarmed civilian protection presence and also lots more. And that's only one part of the program. Next week we'll be hearing the second part of the program and big thanks to Monica for being there with the Palestinian people. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Turn now to Malaysia and a report from environmental consultant Lee Tan on the Australian mining company Linus's plant in Malaysia. But first I'll read you a statement from the organisation Stop Linus Save Malaysia organisation last year. Malaysia is a warm and welcoming country. Rarely does her people rally in force against a corporation. Rarer still that such active protests persist for more than a decade, unrelenting. Anti-Linus sentiments emerged soon after the Linus Advanced Materials Plant, LAMP, project was announced in 2007. This was not unexpected, as no one wants to risk radioactive exposure from having a potentially hazardous rare earth refinery in one's backyard. However, the slight negative sentiment and concern escalated to numerous nationwide demonstrations by 2012, when the plant commenced operations. Today, the anti-Linus movement is still very much active. And that was a report from the group Stop Linus, Save Malaysia. Lee, the Linus website was down over a recent weekend. Are there consequences if a company like Linus's webpage is not operating? Not a lot, actually. As a listed company, Linus is meant to be informing its shareholders and investors regularly through formally lodging reports of any changes to the Australian Security Commission, uh, Investment Commission or ASIC, or through their own website and uh, regular company reports. In terms of um, operations, Linus is really not allowed to operate until it has dealt with the waste, which it has generated in massive amount and it is stored just by the plant in Malaysia. And as a listener may, who may be following this issue, the plant is situated in a low-lying pit swamp that's very flood-prone uh, every monsoon and at every tropical deluge. There'll be a lot of overflow 
of uh, the waste into the surrounding environment and also into groundwater and surface water like river uh, next to it. It is now a health hazard, and if it is not dealt with, it will become a public health scandal, just like the previous rare earth plant, which is much, much smaller in scale in the neighboring state of Perak in a town called Bukit Merah. We're going to see down the track, very likely, you know, according to scientific models, increase in cancer rates in the area and possibly other chronic diseases from heavy metal contamination or contaminated water or food chain, and also particularly radioactive contaminated water or, or food chain. The sad thing is, being Malaysia, where the regulators have been supporting Linus endlessly, be even beyond the tougher decision of the new minister under the new government in Malaysia, the regulators have actually done nothing. Not only they have done nothing, they actually did everything to try and cover up for Linus, which means that community will be copying the impact without actually having any means to prevent it because there's no information available for them. People in the area are already complaining about hazards to the groundwater. Actually, in the executive review done back in October last year and November, um, there have been data coming up from Linus' own monitoring that all their groundwater testing points have shown very serious contaminations from heavy metal, but they didn't show any results of radionuclides contamination. I assume that if they are heavy metal in the groundwater, they would definitely going to be radioactive materials like thorium and a little bit of uranium because their concentration in the waste are much higher than the heavy metals. Who's monitoring all this? That's a problem because, as I say earlier, the regulators are assisting the company, so nobody is really monitoring and we've been asking the minister to look into that. I think the minister is also hampered by the lack of professionalism and the dysfunctional regulators under her wing. And there are other sensitive issues. There's a lot of political repercussion if she's sacked the head of this regulator. So it will have to, you know, in fact, she's relying on civil society to provide data and evidence so that she could actually take action gradually. But unfortunately, that would be at the expense of the community health and also the environment. There is a government review in place, isn't there? Uh, yeah, the review had already been done, but it was actually a bit of a hot wa whitewash in that sense. Initially, the review was meant to be headed by a, a very strong member of parliament from Kuantan, Fuzia Saleh, who's been a very staunch opponent of um, Linus because of the hazards, but uh, Linus objected very strongly. So the government kind of caved in, well, in fact, the government caved in and had their own, I presume, Linus-appointed reviewers. Uh, if, nevertheless, there was some information in there, although not as much as we would like to see, indicating very serious contamination already happening uh, on the ground. What are they actually producing there? 
They're producing rare earth oxides. These particular type of um, oxides are used a lot in very high-tech, electronic, modern industry. Everything we use literally has a dash of rare earth, particularly smartphone, solar panels, winter winter by um, electric cars, even guided scud missiles, your uh, your induction stove top, a whole range of very high technology electronic wares basically, and they're sought after. And uh, because the processing produce well the processing involve huge amount of very toxic chemicals and reagent acids particularly and also the ores usually attach with radioactive particles and toxic metal, heavy metals like nickel chromium cadmium and also toxic substances like arsenic uh, even mercury in some cases in the global north which is you know the OECD countries um, have basically imposed very stringent conditions on this kind of processing. So China ended up being the major producer by default because nobody wanted it, but yet they needed the end products. So the hazards being pushed to a country with lax environmental governance, and China had been copying it since, I think, in the 80s, mid-80s, when U.S. started to basically impose heavy penalty on groundwater com- contamination of their rare earth mine, uh, U.S. initially was the, one of the major producer, but now China's producing over 90% of the world supply. What happened to the plant or the, produ- the production in the U.S.? Where was that? It's in um, California. I mean, there are several others, but... The one in California called Malpass, owned by Molly Cobb, has been the major producer right up to about late 70s when the environmental protection law in the U.S. become uh, stringent and the company kept getting penalized for contaminating its groundwater. So they, they shut it down and then it got reopened again, I think around 2010, and they, the new venture capitalists that own that new Mollycott mine spent a lot of money to make sure there is a circular system and that there wouldn't be any pollution and so on and so forth. But they could not compete with companies like Linus that went ahead you know, with a cheap production and also a lax kind of waste management and contamination safeguards. So Mollycott went bankrupt a few years ago. If Linus had not been there, you know, Mollycott could still survive and that people may have to pay higher price for managing this kind of toxic waste. And at the same time, China also lifted its game by imposing very stringent and, in fact, the world first uh, regulation on rare earth production specifically, you know, setting very high limit. Uh, safety limit for heavy metals, acid uh, runoff, and so on and so forth. So China has now got a cleaner production or supply chains uh, for rare earth than Linus in Malaysia. And Mollycop still struggling, but I think it has been bought by a Chinese company, the last I heard. The company in Western Australia which owns Linus, when did they first mine the rare earths and where did they hope to get their plant up? 
Was it in Malaysia or did they try somewhere else as well? Initially, the mine was owned by another company by the name of Ashton. And then Linus bought it around 2005 by Nick Curtis. Nick Curtis had a lot of experience in the mining industry in China. I think he also owned Sino Gold in Tibet, which was a controversial mining project and was protested by, say, the Tibetan, uh, Australian Tibetan Council over human rights issue and so on and so forth. So Nick has a lot of experience in China and knew what metals or what commodity would become sought after. And he knew that China was going, you know, it was a, rare earth was a big thing in China, or still is a big thing in China, saw potential. And he, he managed to buy the mine from Ashton in WA. And around 2006-7, Linus was looking at China and all Malaysia for the processing. Uh, China, because it has that technology, it has got the, the strong history of production, but China became unattractive because they introduced the tr- stringent environmental governance on rare earth in 2010. So Malaysia became the obvious one because Malaysia has a, had a, at that time a very highly corrupt government that would allow anything without any checks and balances. So around 2009, Linus started to try build the plant in Malaysia, but it, has a, it ran out of capital. And then Japan, because of a dispute with China, came to the rescue by financing Linus. So this is the second time Japan caused this kind of public health um, hazard in Malaysia through rare earth production. The first one was the one that I mentioned earlier in the state of Para in Bukit Merah, which uh, was a Mitsubishi owned one. But in this one, Japan floated liners with the cash to build the plant in near the port of Kuantan, which is near my hometown, unfortunately. What protections are in place for the workers and the residents around this place? Well, Linus claimed that, you know, its operation is uh, zero harm. I mean, how can you claim that your operation is zero harm when you're dealing with very highly concentrated acid? Even the best company in the world that has got the best safeguard would not dare to claim that it is zero harm. And yet Linus has categorically, publicly trying to assure the public that its operation is zero harm. You know, their standard is so high that, you know, it is best practice in a while, with that kind of rhetoric, it shows either that Linus has no idea about the harm, the, the hazards of what it is dealing with, or that this company knew and yet has deliberately played down the hazards of both its operations and also its waste. And it has categorically avoid talking about the waste, which is the major problem. Has there been a major monsoon period since that Oh, yes. Is there? In what fact, happened? well, so the, the operation in Malaysia started in late 2012, you know, early 2013. And yes, of course, there's been constant, every year you get a monsoon uh, deluge and the whole area would be flooded. And of course, you know, a lot of the wastewater, which is also highly contaminated, would be overflown into the surrounding area and contaminating both 
the river water, the coastal water, estuary, and also um, the groundwater. I have been to the villages where I spoke with fishermen, and they say it happens a lot over there, not only just from Malinas, but a lot of the other companies too. Whenever it rains, they will pour out, in fact, they will let their, their wastewater out. And it would contaminate the river so badly you see dead fish floating. And yet the authority did nothing about it. And they don't even know whether it is safe to be swimming in the river or fishing from it because nobody gave them the results. So I know from my own interaction with the Member of Parliament in Kuantan, who's a very amazing woman and who had campaigned tirelessly on this issue, she's trying to get the minister to install much more effective monitoring system, even bypassing his own regulator. The chemicals and the acids that are used in this process, where do they come from? They actually locally source from China as well, like acid particularly. They're using a lot of huge amount of concentrated sulfuric acid, hydrochloric acid. They're mostly from China. Some are produced locally. And they're also using a huge amount of kerosene. But that's actually sourced from a local oil company. How big is the place? Can you give us a uh, picture? It's huge. Yeah, the plant, the whole perimeter of the plant is 100 hectare, but only about 30% of that is consisting of the plant. The rest are for wastewater and waste storage. I put in a lot of photos since the beginning until now of the waste accumulating and piling up high. Uh, one thing I should mention is when the Executive Review Committee concluded their report towards the end of uh, November last year, the, the minister actually went over the recommendation of the Review Committee by imposing much tougher condition on liners to obtain its waste storage license, which is expiring mid, middle of this month. One of the conditions is to remove the over 1 million tons of uh, so-called scheduled waste. These are wastes that are contaminated with radioactive materials, heavy metals, chemicals, and so on and so forth, but not as highly contaminated as another stream of waste called the WLP, or the Water Leach Purification Stream of Waste. So this scheduled waste, still hazardous, has to, should have been removed from the, uh, from the premises to where? To prescribe landfill. And at least they are being monitored, they would be monitored, and that they would have, you know, certain conditions, which may or may not be better than what it is. But Linus did not even bother to do that. Instead, what it did was it piled up its waste higher and higher, stacking them higher than it, its own blueprint. And in fact, Linus' whole waste management system has gone actually beyond its own blueprint. Basically, Linus is violating its license condition because the licenses were issued in accordance with the blueprints of waste management plan that they had submitted, but it didn't follow that. Those wastes would have been, should have been removed ages ago because they were only temporarily storage for one to three years. But they've been there since, far, you know, its operation in 2012, that's like, you know, six years now, and it's still there. And uh, another stream of waste, which is even much more hazardous, is, as I mentioned before, the WLP waste that's highly contaminated. Linus has been asked by the minister to remove that from Malaysia by September this year. 
And there's no way Linus is going to move it anywhere because it is hazardous waste. Apart from the Basel Convention on Transboundary Shipment of Waste, no country would want to accept it unless Linus lied to the, the recipient country that it is a safe waste or something. Malaysia is going to end up dealing with all of those waste with very poor regulation and lack of technical know-how. And in the end, the public will suffer from what? being exposed. And where are these dumps? How far away? They're only about a few kilometers from the sea, South China Sea. So they should leach as well? Oh, they're leaching. They're already leaking and leaching into the river. Um, there's a river called the Balok River next to it. In fact, the wastewater is channeled through the river in open kind of uh, sewage canal, unlined and everything. It's shocking. And when I looked through the review report, what I found was all the monitoring station, the contamination started in 2015. And then by 2016, it got worse, where all of the monitoring station detected contamination. And at their wastewater discharge, the contamination from Nico, I think it was, yeah, was 1,000 times that of the Dutch intervention limit. And yet it's still happening in Malaysia and with no intervention at all. So if you say the authorities are turning a blind eye, is it, it, then it's up to the residents to try and monitor or get the message outside to say, help us, this can't go on, they're going to kill us. I think the, the people in Kuantan has tried, but they're not the immediately affected. Those who are immediately affected has been... Um, manipulated by the political party. Before, the people voted in the Islamic party because at that time, the Islamic party promised them they will deal with the Linus issue. Now that the Islamic party has been basically bribed by the, the main party, which is uh, National Front or Barisan National, I mean, although they're not in power federally, but they are in power in the state of Pahang, and they've changed their tune basically 360 degree by saying that before, saying that it was, a, it was a health hazard, now they're saying it's safe because Linus has given some of their youth from that party jobs. So the residents locally had no idea what they're dealing with. They haven't got access to reliable information. It's dreadful. Yeah, it is actually a public health scandal caused by Australian Linus Corporation. And yet there's no law in Australia that reached you know, beyond Australia when these things happened. I remember when I was with, working for the Australian Conservation Foundation, we tried, you know, of course, to support Bob Brown in a private member's bill to hold Australian company operating overseas to account. But, of course, that kind of bill will never get see the daylight of Parliament. Yeah. And I'd imagine that Linus deny all the accusations against them. Do they do that? Yeah, they kept quoting bits on the review committee, I mean, review report, you know, that praises them. And it's really annoying. Both the IAEA and then the review committee follow the kind of culture of praising uh, or positive language, you know, and hiding the, the really dangerous, risky issues in, you know, in couching that kind of so-called annoyingly diplomatic language. So, no, you, you really have to understand the technical background to be able to pick out the problems. 
Yeah, so Linus is, of course, conveniently picking on that and then citing the IAEA report, although that report was clearly done to look at the pre-licensing stage, not looking at operating license or post-operating license. And yet, you know, that kind of context is often missing when company quote the positive languages they, they could pick out. So we're looking at a disaster in the near future, aren't we, or in the distance future? How, it, how long before um, things get really bad? Yeah, it, it's a kind of slow violence. I think the blessing is that with the change of government in Malaysia, Linus can no longer produce more waste. Until it has dealt with the current waste, it can't produce more waste, and that's a blessing. Does that mean that the production stopped? Yes, the production has stopped since December. If you want to see that as a win, yes, that would be a win. So we did have a few small wins, but it's not good enough to protect the health of the people and the environment. This is a kind of slow violence, which is going to take a long time, you know, to see the impact. It's just like the Minamata disease in Japan. It took 20 to 40 years before the symptoms are observed. And then, you know, following that, it'll be a very expensive cleanup, and you know, there'll be countless of people affected, and they're very—they're usually innocent victims who didn't have any say in decision making. Uh, yet, they're the one who's going to cop the health impact and the medical costs, and also the loss of income and all that sort of stuff. As Australian, what are we going to do when? An Australian company generated so much contaminated waste in another country where they have limited capacity to deal with it safely. If we take the waste back, then it is opening up a precedence for radioactive waste to be returned to Australia, and we don't want that either. So it's a very tricky issue. If we don't take it back, you know, maybe we need to look into helping Malaysia to deal with it safely through diplomatic relation, whatever. But then the responsibility comes to the government, not the company. Well, that's another problem, which is where as much as we can, we should get the company to clean up their their own mess. But if the company went down, which usually can be the case, yeah, it will fall back to the public, unfortunately. And that's why we need to have legislation to prevent company from doing this so that the liability does not come back to the public. The other issue, just briefly to talk about, is the um, charges against Najib Razak and his wife. Yes. What's happening with those? (laughs) number of charges is mounting each time they appear in the uh, Anti-Corruption Commission, but there is a worrying political development as well in Malaysia. The last king of Malaysia, the monarchy, well, the, yeah, the, the Agong, we call him, he's supposedly the constitutional king uh, of Malaysia. He resigned. So now the person who, who succeeded him is the Sultan of Pahang. In fact, he is a very, very new Sultan. He was only installed last week. And he didn't have any experience as a sultan, and yet he's the king, the new king, because of the rotational system they go by the different states. Now, the worrying thing is that this, the Pahang sultan and Najib's family, they went back long time. They traditionally link with the elite Malay family. Um, it's called Orangkaya Network. And the king in Malaysia has the power to pardon 
So the people in uh, Najib's hometown in Pakan already saying that, oh, you know, Najib's not going to go to jail because, you know, the new Agong is actually from Pahang and he would pardon um, Najib. It will be a test of how strong the new government is in Malaysia. I know at the judiciary level, they're trying to do as much as they can, but, you know, they, they also the political pressure from ordinary people, some of whom are still used to the old Malay feudal system. So it's a test also of how much influence of that old feudal Malay and also the, the apartheid pro-Malay kind of uh, policy, how much they're clinging onto that. Because uh, the new government is promising reform of uh, building a non-racially based Malaysia. But I say that it will be a very challenging task ahead. Finally, Lee, is, has there been any success in getting any of the money of the, the one MDB. MDB money back? The money hasn't gone back yet, but they've been identified both by the U.S. government and some by the Singaporean government. The Swiss government's also investigating. Australia did nothing, despite possible, you know, very likelihood of connections, especially through the ANZ Bank, which part own um, the the bank in Malaysia, M Bank, responsible for helping with some of these transactions. But they have identified and, and uh, confiscated assets in the U.S. and also Indonesia. I think the only asset that's been returned so far to Malaysia has been um, the luxurious yacht of uh, one of the other characters involved in 1MDB scandal, Jolo, this fugitive in hiding at the moment. Yeah, he, he has been the mastermind of the 1MDB scandal. So his very expensive luxury, uh, luxurious yacht is now parking in the port of Malaysia. Uh, and they don't know what to do about it. I'll say that they should have actually just used it to make more money to try and recover it. Lots of people probably want to see it. That's environmental consultant Lee Tan. And just another one of the environmental issues that we give time for here on 3CR that you you probably won't hear much about Linus on mainstream media, but this is 3CR and that's what we do best. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun, which way the wind blows. It's 5.15 here on 3CR and as we watch what's happening in Venezuela, it's good to remind listeners of the, the role of the US in attempting to and ultimately bringing down democratically elected governments and 
occasionally being thwarted in their aims. This is a segment from the Latin American program here on 3CR at 10.30 and this was last Sunday's program. Turn now to Malaysia and... And now we've arrived at our special. Latin America has long been the land of the coup. We've often spoken about the harrowing history of the 20th century in this region and the vast array of dictators and crooks that have oppressed a continent-wide population of over 600 million people with US backing and funding at different times, of course. Chile's Pinochet, the military regime in Brazil and the ruthless Somoza dynasty of Nicaragua are just some examples of the many cruel men that secured US interests in Latin America at this time. However, what is not so well known is the fact that the art of the coup has been continuously applied and improved upon by the United States well into the 21st century. And whilst outright military takeovers still apply in some cases, these illegal operations now often take on a far more insidious character. Today's special will chart the criminal attempts of the US, many of them successful, to overthrow leaders dedicated to helping their nation's people and challenging US hegemony in the 21st century. One of the most infamous and blatant examples of US intervention occurred in Venezuela in 2002. A small faction within the military, bribed by Venezuela's business elite, temporarily kidnapped President Hugo Chavez in this year, and business leader Pedro Carmona declared himself president with the backing of the United States. Not only that, but he annulled the country's progressive constitution that had been drafted by Chavez and the Venezuelan people. Thankfully, the vast majority of the Bolivarian armed forces refused to acknowledge the illegitimate Putschist, and the people of Caracas and other major Venezuelan cities were up in arms, demanding the release of their leader. Horrifically, snipers were employed by the right-wing coup plotters to assassinate Chavista protesters and intimidate them into retreating from the streets. They stood firm, however, and Chavez was swept back to power just days later amidst even greater popular support than previously. Media giants were also responsible for the coup with privately owned conglomerates covering the coup in a blatantly anti-Chavez light, even falsely claiming that Chavista supporters were killing people on the streets. CIA involvement was later exposed and the US Foreign Relations Department actively funneled money into Carmona's attempted coup, whilst Obama explicitly expressed his support for the criminal attempt. Two years later, in 2004, the Caribbean nation of Haiti fell victim to US-backed regime change. Voted into power a second time by Haiti's poor masses, Jean-Bertrand Aristide had attempted to implement progressive leftist reforms in his nation, including piecemeal nationalisation and increasing public funding for education and health care. He also had plans to strengthen ties with Venezuela and Cuba and was critical of US Marines being stationed in Haiti. For his attempts to improve the lot of everyday Haitians, Aristide was cooed for a second time, kidnapped from his own home by the United States and flown all the way to the Central African Republic to be jailed. Returning to the continent of South America, 2008 saw US attempts to unseat another democratically elected leader and firm ally of Chavez's Venezuela, Eva Morales of Bolivia. Widespread violence erupted in 2008 across Bolivia as right-wing gangs attempted to prevent Morales from realising a constitution that provided equal rights to Bolivia's majority native Quechua and Aymara populations. Violent right-wing protesters seized gas pipelines, stormed government buildings and killed supporters of Eva Morales in what many experts have now characterised as racially motivated attacks. 
They were, unsurprisingly, coordinated by the wealthy, whiter regions of Bolivia, namely around the city of Santa Cruz, which took the opportunity to attempt to secede from Bolivia and establish their own state. The extremely vile nature of these protests was encapsulated in one racist, bigoted slogan, Out with the shitty Indian Morales. These thugs never achieved their goals. The vast majority of Bolivians were in fact supportive of Morales' attempts to implement a progressive new constitution. The attempted coup was universally condemned by Latin America's governments, which released a statement claiming that they would never support a coup regime in Bolivia. Later that same year, the US Embassy was caught providing assistance, training and funding to these very right-wing protesters, and Morales expelled the US Ambassador from his country due to their explicit role in the horrific violence they had been in large part responsible for earlier that year. The next year, in 2009, another US coup attempt was successful, this time in Honduras. Elected leftist president Manuel Zelaya had instituted a range of reforms that had provided Hondurans with previously unknown rights, from access to education to greater involvement in decision-making opportunities. Zelaya also joined the Bolivarian alliance known as ALBA, strengthening ties with progressive governments in Cuba, Nicaragua, Bolivia and Venezuela. Upon attempting to reform the constitution in order to make it more inclusive and reduce the inflated powers of the military and police, the US and its Honduran military allies intervened. The military regime that seized power in Honduras kidnapped Zelaya and flew him to Costa Rica, where he was detained. The United Nations, Organization of American States, and even the EU condemned the military coup. It was later revealed that Hillary Clinton had been directly involved in coordinating the coup, and as per usual, the military in Honduras received direct funding from both the United States government and numerous NGOs originating from the US. Now, a decade later, the military is still in power, human rights violations have soared, the country is almost in a state of civil war and thousands of Hondurans have fled their country. And the US has secured its strategic interests in the region while simultaneously imposing misery on an entire population. Unfortunately, the list of 21st century coups does not end there. Ecuador proved to be the next target of US imperialism. In 2010, corrupt police attempted to oust progressive leftist President Rafael Correa. Once again, they were receiving money from the United States and had obtained training from US military personnel. Ecuadorian police blocked several major highways across the country, seizing airports as well as parliament. Five protesters who supported Correa against the police were killed in cold blood. Correa himself sought refuge inside a hospital that the police surrounded after wounding the president. He was essentially kidnapped there for over 12 hours. The thugs did not stop there. They began firing on Correa's hospital room and the coup plotters shot one of the men that had tried to defend the president. To cement their control over the nation, the police seized the state-owned TV station and began spreading blatant lies about the situation unfolding in Ecuador. They ultimately failed, Correa was returned to power and he punished those that had attempted to destabilise the entire nation. And so ends the era of the hard coup. 2012 saw the beginning of a new form of US-backed regime change known as the parliamentary coup. This was first tested in Paraguay in 2012. A temporarily imposed right-wing majority in parliament impeached progressive president Fernando Lugo on trumped-up charges of corruption and violence against protesters. Apart from the fact that little to no evidence was provided by Lugo's attackers, the president himself had less than 24 hours to prepare his own defence. These legal tools had been declared illegal in Paraguay for some time. 
Lugo had ended 61 years of corrupt neoliberal right-wing rule in Paraguay and was finally attempting to pursue an independent economic and political path for his country. The U.S., however, had invested serious amounts of money in the deposed Colorado Party, which had been founded by the particularly nasty U.S.-backed dictator Alfredo Stroessner. For this, Lugo had to go. Two major Latin American blocs, Unicer and Mercosur, blasted the coup, and Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff of the Workers' Party expelled the right-wing regime that took power in Paraguay from the Mercosur trading bloc. Since these dark times, the U.S. has only intensified its efforts to undermine the governments of Latin America. We have the illegal parliamentary coup of 2014 that ousted elected Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff and paved the way for right-wing President Michel Temer and ultimately the fascist thug Bolsonaro that now rules Brazil. Right-wing violence in Nicaragua, funded by the United States, was put down last year by the government of Daniel Ortega and the people of that country who have long resented U.S. interference in their affairs. And then, of course, we have continued attempts to coup Venezuela's Bolivarian President Nicolás Maduro, perhaps the most blatant U.S.-backed regime change program of all. certainly is. That segment was first broadcast last Sunday on the Latin American Update program, which is every Sunday morning, 10.30 to 11. It's not to be missed. Hi, I'm Jacob from the Friday Rave, and I'm also on 3CR's Committee of Management. Now, the community of passionate people that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions. For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and, in doing so, remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick, with working bees, door knocks, on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now, we need your commitment to keep this great thing going. Now, you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 94198377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. I'm speaking now with Professor Bassam Daly, Vice President of APAN. Australian Palestine Advocacy Network and Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Adelaide. Bassam recently visited Palestine and I asked him where he went, what did he see and who did he talk to? I actually was visiting family in, uh, in Israel and Palestine and uh, uh, I toured around the country and spoke to a lot of people. I could see that uh, within uh, Palestine or the occupied Palestinian territories, there is a feel of uh, resignation. That there's no real change anytime soon. It's not to say that people are giving up hope uh, for a better future. It's just uh, they don't expect that uh, this would happen uh, anytime soon. What I gathered is perhaps there is uh, two main reasons. One is um, internal, another politically inside Palestine. There's, there's no, no real change, no elections, and no unity sort of anytime soon. And people have become cynical, uh, which is really expected, because uh, 
of the number of times uh, there's false hope that uh, an agreement between uh, Fatah and Hamas uh, has been signed or that an election is imminent or some political change is going to happen. So that uh, created a sense of resignation that you know nothing's going to happen anytime soon unless you know major war starts. The other one is that uh, they watch how Israel is continuing uh, its colonization of the West Bank uh, without any resistance uh, from anyone. The rest of the world is not able to stop Israel's increased settlements. And of course, uh, the Gaza Strip uh, is uh, under siege now from, since 2005, and uh, there's no change in that as well. And increased violence uh, against uh, the Palestinians in the West Bank, which actually make it even harder for them to um, just survive on a day-to-day. There's increased restrictions uh, and the laws in some instances becoming really miserable. All those actually give people this sense that things are not going to change anytime soon and they're trying to survive under, uh, under these circumstances. This violence in the West Bank, is that the settlers or is that the soldiers or is it both? It's really both. In uh, human rights groups have reported that in 2018, for example, Jewish settler violence against Palestinians uh, in the West Bank has increased threefold. So every year they actually uh, record how many attacks there is. So in 2008, 482 cases. Uh, you know, that means more than once a day on average. Armed settlers have invaded Palestinian towns and villages and attacked properties cut olive trees down, assaulted and killed innocent Palestinians with no other reason other than being Palestinians. So, for example, a Palestinian mother of seven, Aisha Rabi, was in a car with her husband driving along. Jewish settler youth started hurling stones at the car. One of these rocks hit her in the head and killed her on the spot. She's a mother of seven. She's just been killed with no other reason than her being a Palestinian. It's part of uh, a movement there called the Price Tag. Supposedly these people, uh, these uh, these attacks are designed to exact price from local Palestinians for residing on the land as residents deem desirable for themselves. So it's almost, uh, you know, punishment for them just being there in their own land. Mosques are usually sort of vandalized and they attack to uh, and uh, Gravity is reading Death to Arabs, Price Tag, Revenge, and so on. And he asked me about the soldiers. So uh, often Israeli soldiers accompany the settlers, the armed settlers, supposedly to protect them, and do nothing uh, to stop them. Uh, they simply uh, stand and watch. And when confronted by Palestinians saying, why aren't you stopping these settlers from their doing, uh, their response is that our role is to protect the settlers, not you which is obviously not true uh, under the Geneva Convention. This is occupied land, and Israel has every obligation to protect these people. So in other words, uh, these attacks are state-sanctioned and supported, and not uh, just random, uh, as they may appear in a way. There's a couple of really heartbreaking incidents. Last Friday, six teenagers uh, went to a valley next to a village called Silward, that is north of Ramallah in the West Bank simply to have a picnic. On Friday, they went out walking in the, in the valley. Uh, Israeli soldiers ambushed them from behind an oak tree, basically using their semi-automatic weapons, fired them at random. They killed um, a 17-year-old called Ayman Hamad. Uh, his friends were lucky to be alive. They were scattered and uh, hiding and so on. And the Saturday before that, uh, January 26, simply uh, with no clear reasons, uh, they killed Hamid uh, Nassan, 38, father of four, 
who was blowing this field next to the village of Fulmarayer. Again, random attack, absolutely unrelated to anything. This guy was working his fields. So in 2018 alone, 880 Vietnam Palestinians were killed by Israeli fires, and more than 20,000 were wounded. For all media here, sometimes this is actually a quiet here, in a way, while Palestinians are being bearing the brunt of, of settler violence. Are either the settlers or the military or police ever charged over these cases where people have been killed in cold blood? Well, this is exactly the point, is that uh, they know that uh, they're going to get away with it. They know that uh, they're not going to be held responsible, and hence they keep repeating it again and again. They know that uh, the perpetrators are neither deterred, uh, arrested, nor punished, and hence they're just repeating it again. And this is why I was saying before that it is state-sanctioned, because there is no price to pay for that. I saw a number of incidents where people were arrested and charged. Mostly they receive very reduced sentences, and the surprising part as well is the community and uh, they stand by them. They make him a celebrity. You may remember a few last year, I think the year before that, uh, a soldier who killed a Palestinian wounded in the ground and shot him in the head. This is against any law in the world, in a way. Not just shot him once in the head, he just shot him repeatedly in the head, didn't he? That's right. While he's lying on the ground, he's already had a a wound in his body. He's still alive, so he shot him in the head again and again. And then uh, this person got uh, less than a year in jail. And now when we got out, He's a celebrity. He's been invited by mayors and by community groups to come to a hero welcome. What type of society would welcome a killer and call him a hero? This guy was lying on the ground, emotionless and barely alive. Instead of bringing an ambulance to actually take him to the hospital, shoot him in the head, and then you become a hero for doing that. This is the reality these days in Palestine. And... uh, and it's part of the movement, I said. It's not, uh, you know, a crazy person done this once. I mean, 482 attacks cannot happen all randomly and without coordination. This is state-sanctioned. I know I could go to the Palestinian village accompanied by soldiers, torch cars, torch horses. I think the most pain I feel when I see pictures of olive trees, you know, olive trees take a long time to grow I saw these videos of people with chainsaws coming in and destroying these olive trees. I know how much pain this would cause those who actually worked year after year after year to look after these olive trees. And most of the time, this is their livelihood. And for what? Why is an olive tree an offense to a settler in Palestine? I just don't understand it. it It really shocks me to the core. And... What shocks me most is the silence uh, from the rest of the world that Israel can do these things and uh, get away with it. Are these settlers coming from Israel itself or are they being brought from overseas? The majority of uh, settlers in the West Bank are sort of um, zealots, if you want, idolos uh, who believe that God gave them this land and that the Palestinians there are squatters as such. Many here in Montevideo have um, very strong uh, American accent. Uh, they're coming supposedly because God called them to come in there. Some uh, lived in Israel and then moved to the West Bank, and others uh, sort of migrated straight into there. Uh, there's now almost 600,000 settlers in the occupied West Bank. And out of those, at least 60% are called financial uh, settlers. In other words, they came in there because the government have subsidized the buildings of 
settlement homes. And they opened uh, freeways and highways uh, to lead to them. If you can buy a house uh, half a price in a settlement, there's a highway to take you there, then, okay, why would you go and buy in Tel Aviv? So you go, you go buy in the settlement. So these people are not there just because they believe in it, just because there's cheap housing. But the rest of them are actually motivated by uh, you know, racial, uh, if you want, uh, ideology, an ideology that uh, says that this is God's will in a way that they will be in that land. Not that only they want to live in there, but they're going to also terrorize uh, the local population just for basically living there and being part of that scene. It really um, gives you a little bit of a feel of what uh, this ideology is all about. And and also, as I said before, without uh, government support, uh, they would not exist both in terms of the settlement establishment and the infrastructure that supports it, and also from allowing them to do all of these things without any price to pay. They live very well on those settlements. Yeah, they have uh, modern houses. Uh, they have they, as much water as they want. They consume, uh, I think, three times more water than uh, the average uh, Palestinian in the West Bank. The uh, average of number of litres uh, that the Palestinian uh, have access to in the West Bank is less than the minimum decided by the World Health Organization. They bring these people in there, they give them uh, water to uh, have swimming pools and lush greens and, uh, and establish themselves in there, uh, while uh, Palestinians are living in squalid conditions and, uh, and have access to less water and uh, sometimes even less electricity with a run-down sort of network. It is a dire situation and uh, won't be surprised that uh, more violence is likely to result because People are sick and tired of seeing injustice uh, happening on a daily basis and they can't do anything about it. Did you spend time with people in the villages? Uh, No, this time I didn't. I have uh, done many times in the past. I also spoke to uh, Israeli and the Palestinian NGOs who uh, report all these incidents and uh, who uh, visit and uh, and record and take uh, first first-hand accounts of what happened. And what do uh, they do with that information? Well, that's the thing, is that uh, it is reported. So um, in the past, Israel was able to, you know, doctor the information because there was nobody collecting it. These days, uh, they can't deny that uh, this happens and that happens. Videos emerges, NGOs reported. And every time uh, there's a report, is uh, sort of uh, just reporting the facts in a way. Israel reacts really negatively to it. They now want to ban Amnesty International from operating uh, in Israel and Palestine. They have just decided to uh, deport the uh, peacekeepers in Hebron. So after the massacre in the Al-Khalili Mosque, uh, the Europeans in particular have this program of uh, monitors. So these monitors are unarmed. They uh, sort of UN um, mandated. And simply their job is to stay in Hebron and record what they see. And they have been there now, I think, for almost 20 years or so. And uh, the locals uh, sometimes joke that, okay, uh, uh, the reports that you're generating, in fact, are even confidential reports. So they send the reports to their governments and to the UN. So it's not something that's actually open to the public. But nonetheless, there are foreigners in there who are actually recording what's happening. And just because those 
observers and monitors uh, basically recall what happens. Now Israel decided to uh, end their mandate and uh, to kick him out of Hebron. And when they did that, now the, uh, the Council of Churches has also decided to withdraw all of its personnel from Hebron. They had this uh, what's called the accompanying program where volunteers would go to for three months, will live in Hebron, and will walk with kids to school to avoid uh, settler harassment and uh, soldiers' harassment, which basically means that the rest of the world has abandoned the Palestinians, especially in Hebron, and left them to fend for themselves. It's really a shocking situation and development, and this has happened last week. Uh, we, we have written to uh, the foreign minister, and I'm uh, uh, meeting with the uh, Australian ambassador today to actually raise the point again and again that this cannot continue. We cannot, even the observers who are supposed to report what's happening on the ground, are now being kicked out because Israel doesn't want the rest of the world to know what's happening in there. And that's really shocking. Not only that uh, the UN and other countries are not doing something about it, now there will be sort of a lack of information to do something about it in this first place. And uh, once again, the Palestinians are being left actually to, uh, to face this, uh, this oppression and occupation um, with no support. But it seems to me that even though the rest of the world does know what's happening, they do little about it. That's exactly right. When I started to sort of taking tours to, to Palestine and uh, to uh, try and document what's happening in there, I had the impression is that perhaps, at least in Australia, that our government doesn't know what's happening in there and they should know. But I realized later, actually, that everybody knows, even in the rest of the world, know what's happening and uh, it's just uh, there's no political will to do anything about it and that's even more shocking. One thing is, okay, I don't know what's happening and hence I have an excuse not to do anything about it. And, uh, it's another that actually I have all the information but uh, I decided it not to be uh, my business to speak out. And this is not only so morally um, corrupt, it's also um, against our obligation to uh, the UN and other uh, particular treaties that we have signatory to, where we have obligation to speak about uh, these atrocities anywhere in the world, uh, especially the Fourth Geneva Convention, which uh, sort of large part of it is Poland. We, we do have obligations. We have to do something about it. And I would call on anyone who sort of have... Uh, access so who feel strongly about it to write to their local members and to write to the prime minister and the foreign minister and saying this has to stop the the will of the international community will be respected uh, and uh, and if not israel need to bear the consequences of it thus far it hasn't you're listening to an interview with professor bassam daly vice president of the australian palestine advocacy network and is also Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Adelaide. And this is 3CR Community Radio. Were you told that the US cuts to the UN is, is biting? Yes, um, I've actually heard from uh, some people who are in charge of uh, UNRWA schools in particular, uh, who are saying, well, we now have um, an uncertain future uh, because last Sunday, I think, all uh, U.S. aid programs uh, to Palestine has been cut, including the funding to the uh, to one of them, the U.N. Uh, uh, refugee uh, work. Uh, I can't remember the, the full uh, acronym. 
But um, uh, the cut on the funding actually will have major impact on uh, existing uh, uh, schools, existing programs. There were some countries which uh, decided to um, fill the gap in the interim, but uh, this may not be a solution for the future. So um, that's another looming issue that Palestinians are likely to have to deal with in the near future is basically funding for their minimum infrastructure. Mind you, uh, you know, a lot of the funding goes to uh, refugee camps in, in Lebanon, where there's more than 350,000 Palestinians live. And uh, in Jordan as well, where still there's people living in refugee camps in there, and these fundings uh, support their uh, clinics and, uh, and uh, social services and schools. But you can't imagine how that's going to impact those refugees camps because they all they already live on the basic minimum or even less than the basic minimum. Yeah, it's not enough that they uh, they have suffered for more than 70 years. They've been told now that uh, you know uh, it's their fault that uh, that they don't have a better lifestyle or or can can fit for themselves. So well, in effect, is they're living in countries, especially in, uh, in Lebanon, where a lot of things are not allowed for them, where they can live and how they can, what, what work they can do. Uh, and the conditions in the camps are absolutely shocking. It's, I have never uh, seen uh, or heard about uh, situations that bad. In and yet, you know, uh, even uh, education, which is a basic sort of uh, human right issue, uh, right for them to actually get some education and get ahead in life now has been cut because the Americans think that uh, this supposedly by doing this cut they're helping too so I'm not sure how this uh, by making people uh, uh, cutting funding to schools is somehow is going to help Israel or, or peace in the Middle East uh, this, is, this is beyond me obviously they know something I don't know but uh, unfortunately um, in Lebanon in particular, the situation is dire. Not only that uh, they had uh, such a uh, you know, bad situation to start with, they actually uh, absorbed some of the uh, Palestinian refugees from Syria following the civil war in Syria as well. And those uh, refugees from Syria who uh, went to Lebanon, the UN will not help them because they said, oh, you should get aid in, uh, in Syria. But... They're going to lose their lives in Syria. I mean, the remote uh, refugee camp is uh, almost but empty now, and half of it has been destroyed. And yet, uh, what they're saying is that these refugees should go back to uh, to Syria to get it, rather than sort of supporting where they are. It's really, really tragic. Something has to be done about it. You also visited family who actually live in Israel. Can you talk about that? Among all of this sort of um, really... Uh, dire situations. Uh, the Palestinians in, in Israel, Palestinian citizens uh, of Israel, fare a little bit better. Uh, they're still being treated as second-class citizens. 20% of the population in Israel, for around uh, maybe 1.4 million, are those indigenous Palestinians who basically stayed um, uh, or fled and hid and so on in 1948 and, and stayed in uh, became citizens of Israel. Lately, last year, uh, the Knesset has legislated to officially uh, discriminate against them in, in a big way. So they passed something called the National State Law, which basically uh, uh, made the Jews in Israel uh, to have superior powers and rights to any other people uh, or race in Israel. 
So what, what this does is basically impinges uh, and most importantly legalize the racial discrimination against non-Jewish citizens of Israel. Uh, for example, now it is legal for the Israeli government uh, to pay uh, X amount of dollars to educate a Jewish student in a primary school and pay uh, half of that to educate a Palestinian Arab student, citizen of Israel, I have to say, in, in, in Israel. So the discrimination and racial segregation or racial uh, discrimination is now law. And now uh, people living in there who pay taxes and do all the duties are absolutely beyond themselves and saying, in 2019, uh, there is now a law which uh, discriminates against them just because of their uh, racial background. And yet, you know, a lot of people still repeat, including our politicians, repeating the mantra that Israel is a, is a democracy and uh, let alone the only democracy in the Middle East and so on. That actually is, uh, has been challenged many, many times uh, in that Israel uh, wants to be the... Uh, the state of the Jews rather than the state of its citizens, like any other country in the world. And it couldn't be any more sort of, um, you know, racist in my view than that. Now there's an upcoming election, and that's one of the issues I faced when I was there. Uh, uh, there is an election in the month of April coming up. And if you look at the candidates, the platforms, uh, all of it really rests uh, anywhere between the extreme right to the... Uh, very right and so on. So real left parties don't exist in Israel. There's, there's what is called the Arab list, which is or the joint list, which is basically mostly uh, Arab politicians, uh, they, and they usually get anywhere between 10 to 13 seats out of 120, so less than 10 percent. And they do have uh, a Jewish uh, representative among them. A lot of them actually now, uh, as the election uh, heats up, uh, are, are fearing the, uh, the hostility and the racial verifications because these uh, right-wing parties, the only way they, uh, they're going to sort of get more votes, uh, they want to basically try and outdo each other on their hostility and hatred to the Palestinian population. Uh, for example, uh, there's a new candidate uh, called Benny Katz. He's a retired chief of staff of the Israeli army. He was in charge of the army when uh, the latest attack on Gaza happened. And his first video about his election, he was showing footage stolen from the Palestinians themselves, boosting how uh, he and the army at the time have uh, taken Gaza back to the Stone Age. Uh, remember, this is an election video by somebody who, you know, he's now running second after Netanyahu in terms of popular vote. And the only way to actually drum up support for his party is to show how cruel he was to the Palestinians. Unbelievable. 2,400 people were killed. Uh, 1,800 of them are women and children. And more than 24,000 structures were destroyed, including you know, tens of schools. How is this something that uh, a candidate in an Israeli election should boost a lot as something that uh, people should vote for him? It's beyond me. So with this hostility, the locals, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel, uh, feel low pressure. They feel um, being uh, sort of uh, hammered and harassed. In fact, following the, uh, the national state law, there was a reported increased hostility in attacks. Uh, members, uh, Arab members of the Knesset were called terrorists. The approach that uh, the uh, 
officials towards the Arab population has somehow changed, and even the average person in the street suddenly feel that he was born in that country, he lived him and his ancestors there for um, centuries, and yet now uh, he's been treated as uh, you know an impostor, as somebody who is foreigner in their own land, which is really sad. What form does that harassment take for the ordinary Palestinians living in Israel, according to your family? It's not sort of um, yet in the same extent that what's happening in the West Bank. But you've been stopped just because you look Arab. You've been harassed in the airport uh, for hours just because you are an Arab. My brother was taken out of a plane for no reason. He was taken in a flight. He was going to meet his friends in Ilat. He was taking a flight from Haifa to Ilat. He's a dentist flying by himself. You know, it's not like, you know, there's anything suspicious about him. Simply uh, this airline or the safety person airline or the security person airline looked at him and he didn't like him. And he says, OK, you're not flying in this uh, flight. There's no explanation given. Uh, just come back uh, in three hours for the next flight. And the airline itself, you know, very apologetic, but they could not do anything about it. I mean, it's just simple examples of uh, for daily things. You go to the airport, interrogated, stopped for hours, strip searched, and and so on, for no reason. In fact, sometimes you strip searched outside. And this is a daily occurrence. Uh, You you order uh, a courier, in a way, comes to the staff or to the fringes of the village and say, come and take your stuff from here, I will not go into the village. There's no reason why they can't come. There's no hostilities, no attacks. You know, people pass on there every day, but just because they can. You, know, you have to hop in your car and go to the edge of the village to pick up your parcel because somebody decided that he doesn't want to go in. And so on. It's this sense of, sense of suddenly you, you are being uh, you know, treated differently. Uh, for example, also, there's certain uh, specialities. Uh, if you want to go into medicine, they have a quota. I mean, it's unwritten, but there's a quota for a number of uh, Arabs they would accept. Many more qualified Arab students who actually can can enter the program, but they're not given the opportunity because they're simply Arabs. We don't want too many Arabs in the program. These things which actually uh, get into people's nerves. And, uh, some of it is hidden, some of it is direct, some of it is indirect. And the most obvious is funding for municipalities. Uh, there's a clear discrimination, a factor of two or three sometimes of the amount of money that goes to Two municipalities, one Jewish, one uh, one Arab, next to each other. One gets all the funding, another one gets, uh, you know, third of it. I'm sure some of the citizens may have heard about uh, the Bedouin problems in the Negev. 26,000 Bedouins are going to be basically uprooted from their land and moved somewhere else because Israel decided, um, declared that land uh, either military land or places where it want to build Jewish-only uh, homes. Why did they decide to do it there? Well, no reason. Simply, they decided that this land we want to take, and if they, if that means 26,000 people need to be moved somewhere else, then we'll let it be. Al-Araqib has been destroyed 139 times. These people have been living there since 1948. The state told them you could stay in here, this is your land, because they moved in from another place. Now they're coming and saying you have to move because we decided we're going to build a Jewish home village. Hey, they're citizens like everyone else. We won't go and do this to another Jewish population, say, move from here because we want to build an Arab village in there. In fact, since 48, Israel built hundreds of um, Jewish-only places and zero Arab villages. 
threat, you know, is like called self-democracy. Discrimination is, is um, you know, out there for everybody to see. And I'm not telling anything that's actually secret. This has been reported uh, once and again by human rights organizations in Israel and elsewhere as well. Finally, Basam, take you back to December last year in the AOP conference and the, the vote for Palestine. You would have done some of the lobbying in South Australia, or maybe your colleagues have, and that the level of knowledge that those people had of what's happening, did they have any knowledge at all? Yeah, I mean, I belong to a group called the APA, Australia Palestine Advocacy Network. In fact, I'm the vice president. We made it our... Uh, or aim to educate politicians in particular and officials about what's happening in Palestine. So I could categorically say that decision makers know what's happening in Palestine because we have informed them, sent them a lot of information. And because also we live in an information age, there's actually ignorance is, is a choice, really. So many of those who sort of helped uh, support the motion that was passed in the LP conference they are well educated about what's happening in there and they had uh, sort of gathered enough courage to uh, do something about it. Obviously, uh, the, the motion itself uh, is not going to liberate Palestine, but it's a step in the right direction in supporting the rights of Palestinians for recognition and for them giving some sort of rights to be able to fight for their rights and under, under the international sort of framework, if you want, to under international law. So we're hopeful that uh, if a Labour Party is, uh, is to be in power uh, in, in May, that in the first term they will actually recognize the state of Palestine and they will follow the motion that they have passed. We do have uh, quite a few uh, supporters uh, in the Labour Party in particular and uh, we believe that momentum behind this issue will be sufficient to uh, get to the um, politicians to actually act uh, on it rather than just leave it out of their hand. I have to um, commend all of those, uh, not necessarily... Uh, politicians, but uh, you know, the ranking file, uh, members of the Labour Party, who actually worked really tirelessly to make this happen. Now quite a few chapters of what's called the Labour's Labour for Palestine, and uh, so these are members of the Labour Party who support the uh, right of Palestinians for their, their freedom and independence, and they now exist in, uh, in different states uh, around the country. It is a good start, and uh, I have to say that uh, uh, we do have uh, also support, uh, really excellent support among the Greens. Their policies are the most progressive when it comes to the issue of uh, Palestine. And even within uh, uh, nationals and the liberals, there are individuals who uh, believe in, uh, in, in the cause of peace in the Middle East, and uh, despite the government policies, uh, there are people who actually have expressed uh, support, uh, have visited uh, Palestine and have uh, even spoken publicly about it. Thank you, Bassam. Yeah, well, thank you very much. It's been quite extensive. And that was Professor Bassam Dali, who's uh, a Vice President of APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, and a Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Adelaide. And I hope someone's going to ring up for listener sponsor for Tuesday Home Time in the, the next week. You can do it any time you like. You don't have to do it today. But um, it's February, the month of February, so we're hoping to get as many subscribers as we can to keep this wonderful radio station on air for yet another year. And that's what it's all about, making sure that um, we stay here 
to bring you programs like you've just heard today. So I'll be off now and I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.